Hello and welcome to the Maximum Theater and Performance Podcast. This is Lindsay Behrens. On today's episode, we go deep on Skeleton Crew by Dominique Morisseau at Atlantic Theater. And we discuss our widely varying perspectives on a handful of other productions in New York City right now. Enjoy the show. So this is the Blizzard edition, post-Blizzard, now just in the slush. Neither rain nor sleet nor massive snowstorm will prevent us from doing this podcast or irresponsible landlords who don't (laughs) shovel their front porch area but you know look on the bright side it saved us from an extra trip to bushwick (laughs) that is true Um, yes we did miss a show that we were hoping to talk about on this episode because of the blizzard that show is biter part of the exponential festival so that unfortunately which i'm a little bummed about because i actually was looking forward to it yeah me too oh for sure but you can't uh, foresee the second largest snowstorm in New York City history right. no. striking on the weekend you're getting all your shows done. That's right. That's right. Well, this is back to our regularly scheduled programming from the massive January Festival Bonanza. Except that half the shows we're talking about are actually festival shows anyway. No, only two of them out of four. So let's start with introductions. Oren. Two out of uh, five. Wait a minute, there's no uh, artichoke and long yarn? No, the two... Oh, oh toilet fire, toilet fire, <laughs> and, toilet long fire and long yarn are right. exponential festivals. But there are five shows we're talking about. Okay, fine. <laughs> Stickler for counting. Toilet fire, I gotta write that down. <laughs> spoilers, guys, spoilers. I'm Oren Squire for New York Theatre Review. Uh, I'm David Levy. Uh, this week we'll say I'm from fuckyastevensonheim.tumblr.com. Yeah. And this is Lindsay Barons from Maximu. Okay, we are assembled to discuss theater. Let's start with Skeleton Crew. Oren. Oh, we're starting off with Skeleton Crew, the best of the bunch. (laughs) (laughs) Written by Dominic Morrissey, directed by Ruben Santiago Hudson, starring an amazing cast of people I've seen before. Nakia Mathis, who is in Milk Like Sugar, and the Terrell McCraney uh, Brown Water Cycle Plays. Uh, Linda Gravett, uh, Wendell B. Franklin, uh, Jason Durden and a performer dancer by the name of Adesola Osolakalumi, which sounds Nigerian, and I just butchered it. So got that first butcher out of the way. I actually looked up pronunciation on that name. How do you pronounce it? Adesola. Adesola. Osakalumi. Osakalumi. Okay. That's okay. Actually... I think you mispronounced a couple other names in that batch too. Oh, so. uh, <laughs> Linda Gravit. Perhaps. No, I don't know. Anyway. We did our best. We try. Yeah. Well, this new play is the last in the trilogy of Detroit series by Dominic Morrissey, Paradise Blue, which is at Williamstown Theater Festival this past summer, and of course, Detroit 67 from two years ago, which was at uh, Classical Theater. The public. As well as a public theater and a co-pro. Now, this one is, I think, one of the strongest pieces this year in the season and it's about a detroit auto factory plant shutting down it isn't the car plant itself but it's like a car parts plant that is slowly shutting down and phasing out in detroit which has sort of been left to the wolves economically and almost literally if you read stories about detroit and michigan these days with flint michigan and what's going on with the water crisis uh, and Dominic Morrissey sets this in the break room of this factory that's being phased out and it overlaps these four friends and co-workers and what they're having to do, how they're having to survive. One, uh, Shanita, played by Nakia Mathis, who's pregnant and who really needs a job. One, uh, Faye, played by Linda Gravett, who is the union rep and the oldest one there, you know, sort of representing the workers. Uh, Dez is played by Jason Durden, and he is the uh, young, hot pistol guy who is in love or is in lust with Sunita and also is trying to use this job to get to the next level. And the last one is Reggie, who is the manager in charge of these three workers and is a rule book fascist, really loves rules, really is a stickler by the book, and at the same time is torn between following the rules as a manager and also his loyalty to the people who worked for him for all these years and how the management in Detroit wants him to just cut these people and cut them off at the knees ruthlessly. And that's, fascist. That's, that's rough. <laughs> he's sort of, he sort of is. And, <laughs> I mean, I, I sort of know people from that world, not Detroit, but people who are 
managers who are put in those positions of power and who come from the community. Mm-hmm. And they have to change themselves to fit in with management. And at the same time, people know them from their own hometown. And so they're torn between these two worlds. And usually if you survive, you have to go the route of more right wing. Mm. And it's your own fault and that sort of uh, mentality and thinking, which is self-destructive. And I don't mean to foreshadow what happens in the play, but the drama is about these three or four lives self-destructing while this factory is getting shut down. And I think it's a beautiful play. It's very naturalist, simplest, simple play. The one element of magic or theatricality is the dancer, break dancer, hip-hop jazz movement person that is in the transitions of the show as well as the beginning. I found that element of the show less effective as it went on. I thought it was very beautiful at first. And at the top of the second act, it really worked. But I thought there were maybe a few too many moments where we have a transition and you see the break dancing. And I know the break dancing is covering the transition they're making, but it didn't move or progress. Quite literally, it was it seemed like the same style of dance again and again that didn't really tell a story except for, hey, we're having a scene change. Look at this guy move and pop and lock. So that's a minor quibble for an otherwise very good show. Uh, structurally, it reminded me of last year's hit by Katori Hall, Our Lady of Chebejo, at Signature Theater, where if we're talking rhythm and pacing, there were a lot of two-person scenes. And when you have four people in a play, I'm always thinking, how can you use all four people as much as possible in a dynamic way? And if you see it and you get a little bit tired in the middle that might be it it's just the pacing of having each scene back to back with someone walking into a room talking to another person conflict 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 some sort of resolution or end of the conflict end of the beat then someone walks out next scene lights up someone walks into a room this happens like five or six times in a row and at a certain point as an audience member when you see lights fade out and then fade up and it's the same scenario of conflict your mind begins to wander a bit but that's a minor quibble for an important play, an entertaining play, and a poetic play that I'm really excited is out there. Yeah, this play was roundly lauded by the the commentary class. I think everyone <laughs> very much enjoyed it. Um, I actually saw a reading, uh, an advanced skit level reading of this at the Lark uh, a couple of years oh. ago. So it was really fascinating to see how the play had progressed and grown. I enjoyed it at the time. I thought it was a very interesting commentary on the decline of American industrial base and what happens to the people who had been earning healthy middle-class incomes. And then when that is dismantled, what happens to them? What is the socio-psychological impact of losing a job where you feel like you are making a substantial contribution to building something? And, um, but then to see it grow and become even better and richer, it was fascinating for me to get to experience a tiny bit of this play's development history. Um, I think there are two things that make this play brilliant, more so than just being a very well-executed play. And one is the monologue by Shanita about the pride she takes in her work and how she doesn't just want to work. She doesn't just want to have a job. She doesn't want to work at a copy center, which is the alternative job she's considering as the future at this plant is in danger. She is very proud of her role at at um, at the factory. She is proud of the fact that if she steps away from the assembly line, the assembly line doesn't work. She plays a critical, essential role in that. If somebody doesn't take her place, the assembly line shuts down. And indeed, it makes her father proud of her that she has a good-paying job where she is contributing. And I found that monologue to be heartbreaking. I think it is absolutely brilliant, and I think it will become one of those monologues that people use for auditions because it requires such a range and such a cutting to the core of um, an emotional truth. And then the second thing, and I don't know if this is a quibble with what you said, Aaron, or just a slightly different perspective on it, but I didn't find the middle manager to be a monster. I thought he was 
really struggling between two forces the the owners of this factory who have a singular financial interest and the workers who he he was once one of right he he was one of the guys who worked through the ranks to become a middle manager at this plant and that the four characters in the show are three workers one of whom is a senior worker and has um, a position with the union that represents this the workers at the plant and then this middle manager in a way there's no big bad on stage right like mm. i think the well the big you, bad is the economy right. right well the big bad <clears throat> is the economy and the capitalists who own the plant but that person doesn't appear on stage well, the I conflict think fascist, is more nuanced mm. than that and well, so I don't mean it's, fascist I it's so in a monster way. I mean fascist in a technical definition. I think mm. in America we use fascist to mean like Nazis. awful yeah. person. <laughs> I mean actual fascism. I mean I'm reading a book right now about Godard and his followers in the 50s. They were fascist. They were right wing. But it has a different context in Europe than it does in America. Yes. Where we connotate it with like bad people. Right. As opposed to in Europe, it's like, no, they have a philosophical viewpoint that's right wing. And they believe in leaders from the top down who enforce very stringent rules upon the masses. Now, I don't think he's definitely – I don't think he's an enemy at all. He's definitely the the antagonist. Yes. In an antagonist-protagonist binary concept of traditional plays. But I don't think he's bad. I, but I, I would argue that if he's actually a fascist, then he would be punishing people and not just hanging up, like, signs that admonish them. Like, I, th- I, I think that – I think he's actually playing – a very careful game to appear as though he's enforcing rules without actually enforcing rules. I, that, I agree with that. And I think that's what, that's the point I'm trying to make is that in terms of a protagonist and antagonist, that those roles in this play are extremely nuanced. And that is part of what I think makes it so brilliant is that she didn't put the easy to define big bad guy on stage and have the conflict be between like the clear good and the clear bad instead it's this like nuanced mushy middle where someone is trying to uphold both his role what he is paid a paycheck to do and his values and his his innate is innate desire to care for the people who he knows and has relationships with well i was gonna say uh earlier in the week i was meeting with an executive for a film company here in New York City. And he was talking about uh, a project based on a documentary about the first paramedics in America, which took place in uh, Pittsburgh. I put the, posted this up on Facebook. I was say, did you talk about this? Because I feel like I just I posted this on Facebook. <laughs> and I learned about this through him. And it was about uh, the people in Pittsburgh and the Hill District, where August Wilson was born and raised, who were thought of as worthless and unemployable, who the city decided to put to use as paramedics to pick up pretty much people who are near death or death and ship them to the hospital. And no one wanted that job, so they gave it to the people who were at the low end who couldn't have any options. And, of course, through training, these became the most valuable members in society because they were saving lives. They weren't just picking up bodies. They started doing medical procedures. They started saving lives. They took pride in their job. They took pride in being able to be a drug addict who was an alcoholic and then become this clean-cut member of society who is literally saving lives. And they can point to something they did every day and say, look, I did that. And, of course, what happens is when they become a critical member of society, uh, society tries to cut them off, and they try to fire everyone and get rid of all the black people, and they rehire almost all white people. Once they fired all the initial people who were worthless and unemployable, gave them some pride on something, and then turned them back into being unemployable after they proved, like, oh, this is valuable. And I feel like the story of what's going on in Michigan and Detroit is similar. Uh, The auto industry and the unions were very strong and powerful when they were mostly segregated and almost all white people. In the 60s, when it was desegregated, we not only saw an economic shift that was going on with the union battle, but also this detachment of looking at the common worker as being like them, the management. It became these black people and these colored people and these poor people, and then it became the management, which is mostly all white and male. And it set up this dynamic that led to the destruction of one of the best cities in America, Detroit, one of the most, one of the shining jewels of American industrious uh, know-how and all this stuff, along with Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and you can go down the list, Gary, Indiana. These cities that are now uh, virtual wastelands or uh, literal wastelands because of what was done. And it was done purely almost out of spite and evilness. 
there's almost an evilness of not only racism and classism, but greed. And unfortunately, when you work for that part, I think you are a part of it. I'm not saying he's a bad guy, but when you work for management, you are a part of that evil. And that evil is even more complex because he came from middle class or lower class background and he's black. But you are a part of that white, heteronormative, patriarchy, capitalist uh, supremacy that destroys people, that destroys countries, that destroys cities, particularly destroys people who are black or Latino or brown. And we're seeing that now in Flint, Michigan, once again, mostly black population that is being poisoned to death by a white governor, a white mayor who was installed by the government against the will of the city, and to save $100 has decided to that it was worth it to literally poison people who will now have lead poisoning for the rest of their life and suffer mental brain damage. This repeats itself again and again and again. And I would say that this character, even though he's well-intentioned, is on that side of the management. If this was reproduced as like an Ibsen enemy of the people about water set in Flint, Michigan, that character would be the management in that. He would be representing that evil. What makes it more complex, like I said, is that he is black. He's from working class backgrounds, but he's still representing that. Right, but he's he's also, I mean, I don't think everyone is either a hero or a victim, but he is also a victim of this. He is He's put into that position. He's not, you know, he's not someone who necessarily is looking to uphold that, power structure he's looking i mean he is certainly someone who's looking out for himself um but he's also trying to look out for other people uh, you know he i'm trying not to not give away too much about the show but i think his relationship with Faye, which i think is the mm-hmm. most interesting relationship in the whole play because they're both so proud and they both care so deeply about each other um really challenges all all of those things about the power structure that you're talking about, where although he is technically management and she is the embodiment of the union, um, you know, their relationship also transcends a lot of those power structures that um, that management typically represents. And, uh, and that's why when they try to strike a deal with each other and keep a secret from the other characters, um, it doesn't feel like like he is the evil seducer and she is the um you know innocent victim of it it's two complicated three-dimensional characters who are generally trying to do what's best for themselves for their families and also for their their colleagues co-workers who are um in many ways like family to them um but at the end of the day the management still got almost everything they wanted yeah but he didn't <laughs> he's right. the middle manager he's locked between these two forces i think i view his character as much more than just a representation of the forces of ultimate the owners of capital i think his position is much more complicated than that much more nuanced and i don't view him on stage as just purely a representation of of that element of the the power structure here i think it's a complex representation of it but if we're talking about theater as a social political tool I feel like as left-wing people, we have to start naming it. We have to start identifying it. The right wing is great at doing that, and they turn it into demonizing people, of course. But in the talkback discussion afterwards, there was almost this fear of naming who was responsible. It was always like, it's over there, and therefore it leads to a sense of apathy and helplessness. You watch a play, and you go like, oh, well, it's the people you don't see off stage. It's this person. And it's like, as left-wing theater people and activists, as artists, we have to start not only naming it, but putting a face on it. Now, he's a complex face. I'm not saying he's a monster, but it's so important that we start doing it because that's when art becomes an activating tool as opposed to, oh, this is terrible story about these people and what can you do? I'm hungry. Let's go eat well, dinner. I, I don't think saying that it's not black and white doesn't mean that you're saying, oh, what can you do about it? But I do think mm. if, like, first of all, I'm so surprised that of the three of us around the table, you're the one who most wants to, like, sort these characters into sort of, like, good guys, bad guys. Well, I don't want to sort them into good guys, bad guys. I want to sort them into management and workers. I want to sort them into the larger problem, the macro problem that's going on that caused this, that's still going on today, and how people hide behind... Uh, a monologue, and I'm sure the governor of Michigan is going to go on 60 Minutes and tell some tearful story about how he, when he was a boy, how his father raised him, and blah blah blah, and all that bullshit. <laughs> and then he'll get off from poisoning kids, okay, and we'll but, go, oh well, well he means well. Okay, but if we're going to talk about um, actual 
actions, and we're going to get into spoilers here, folks. So if you're concerned, and I think this show's mostly sold out, so sorry. Yeah, you're not um, going to get it. You know, he's the one who who sticks who basically lets Faye sleep in the in the plant because she's homeless, despite the fact that that is absolutely a violation of the rules. He's the one who who goes to bat for um, for Des when he brings a gun to the plant and. And looks like, although it turns out he's not, but looks like he's stealing. And he and Reggie actually thinks Des is stealing, but he also covers for him with management and saves his job. And meanwhile, Faye, who is the union rep and and, and the embodiment of the people, so to speak, is the one who um, basically keeps the information about the plant closing from the other workers and screws them over just as much as, if not more than... Reggie, the manager, does. I'm not saying he doesn't have an arc, nor does Faye have an arc. I'm just saying if it's black and white. <laughs> it's like, not black and white. Why do you keep saying I'm... Because say, you keep saying I'm he's, not saying he's, he's the, black and he's white He's the one or who's evil. complicit, and he's the he one... He is complicit. She's complicit, too, and she's the He's people. complicit in management. It is that type of middle management that gets people like that screwed over. And it's so mostly the, black and Latino people who are put in those positions to screw people over in those small factories. I'm not saying they're bad people, but this is how it goes down. So why, why, why is he the one who you're focusing on and not Faye who is union management who is supposed to be the people's representative but who is the one who screws them over just as much we can focus on Faye too as far as the corruption of the unions has a little bit to do with the decline of the middle class and the working class but a lot of it has to do with management the unions are corrupt and irresponsible in a lot of avenues of America in corporations as well as in factories but the unions corruption does not compare to the corporations and the corporations get their corruption done through middle people who are middle managers that's how they get it done it isn't just people on wall street sitting there pushing buttons someone then has to go in that room and do the news and spread the news and have the axe and chop off people's heads now it could be a sympathetic you know executioner you could be a sympathetic middle manager but there's still blood on the axe at the end of the day the factory still closes. I never said he was a monster, evil, or it's black and white. He is a nuanced character with an arc, but he is the only thing on stage that embodies what's happening in this country and why working class people are getting screwed over. The unions represent, what, like 300,000 people in the entire country now. It used to be millions. That's a small fraction in comparison to Wall Street and in comparison to what Wall Street forces middle managers in towns like Detroit to do. And he's the only one on stage that represents that. Why can't we just name it, put a face in it? The right wing does that all the time. I don't think that because the right wing does something is a reason that we want to do something. But it helps activate people. I will say at least that the left wing, I feel like we watch stuff and we just sort of go, so many plays we see now don't have, as we talked about last year, antagonists. When there's social issues, they just exist somewhere else. There's no one on stage. It's just like there's an evil, as we'll talk about later with Sanctuary, in the world somewhere. <laughs> and we kind of go, oh, okay. And we watch it and go, wow, this is really shitty. But no one's to blame. It's just this unnamed, faceless evil. Oh, well, I'm going to go have brunch. That's so interesting. <laughs> Interesting. My perspective is entirely aligned with yours in terms of like your analysis of the social ills of society, but my view of how it gets represented in this play is totally the opposite of yours. Which is why it's great art. Yeah. yeah. So I actually think that the fact that the big bad is not on stage and is only tangentially represented by this middle manager in this very nuanced, conflicted role makes this play so much more interesting to me than if you did what you're proposing, named the bad, which I, I'm all for. I totally support that going forward. But to me, this play isn't that, and this play offers a different perspective into the challenges that workers and middle management face, which is very different than the owners of capital face versus workers um to me that's an e that's an easier demonstration to put on stage than what we have here which is far more subtle it's more subtle but if you have something i'm not going to use nazis because then we get a little bit blinded talk, in america talk about, like, but the tutsis and the hutus if you have someone who's a hutu who's trying to get the family out but still goes in with the machete and chops up people he's a complex antagonist but he's still the antagonist representing the genocide that's, but we all like, an extreme that i think okay, isn't fair but, but reggie isn't right the only things we see reggie do is saving people not not chopping up people he saves dez's job he he gives Faye a home or tries to like that's in the context why, of what in the context of an in city and a factory itself in that room that is falling apart and imploding that we know about as an audience member, which is why Dominic Morrissey doesn't need to be. That he is totally powerless to keep from imploding as a as a middle manager. Like, what is he supposed to be doing? 
He can organize with a union. He can't. He's management. He can. No, you need, that is not Faye, how unions work. Faye organized what management went against what she was supposed to do. He could do the opposite. He can I mean, go against what management's doing. There are always options is what I'm saying. You don't have to sit there and just be like, I'm middle management. I'm just the, the sewer system through which the shit flows through onto people. But I don't think people. that's what he does. I think, look, if we say that his range of options are within a, a certain specified range. Yes, he could go outside the range of what is sort of like the typical behavior we would see from a middle manager. But within what would be considered the average range of his options, I think he does much of what he can to support the workers and Faye, right? He could go outside of that range, but he doesn't because he is also a man with a family that he's trying to provide for. He's also a person who takes pride in the fact that he has risen through the ranks within this structure. And so, yes, we could ask for from him to do extraordinary things, but within the range of what is typical, I think he is a very... Uh, honest actor he's doing what he can within his power which is also limited to help the people who he considers friends and comrades in within the factory i agree with most of what you said but i don't think his window is that limited i think he's a sympathetic character i still think he's an antagonist i think he's a sympathetic character who's complex but there's so much more that could be done that's not spoken of because we just assume he's management. We can't put him in an inconvenience. We're willing to put the working class and the union in an inconvenience in the second. Oh, They're put in an inconvenience in the first scene. He lies to the management on multiple occasions to protect his workers. He is doing that. He's doing exactly what you're saying. To he's protect not doing. workers who are eventually going to be fired anyway or well, let he, go or replaced. He, he can't make them not get fired. He can't make the plant not close. But he can preserve their jobs. Within his range of options, there's more that can be done that wasn't presented on stage. I I think you are now criticizing a play that we did not see and not the play that we saw. No, I'm criticizing the (laughs) politics behind the play. Not the play itself. The play is very good. The play is great. I'm I'm criticizing the issue the play brings up, which is why we're sitting there watching it. We're not watching it because it's a Shakespeare adaptation. We're watching it because of the social issues relate to us now and relate to this country that's going on right now. That's why we're watching it. So I'm talking about the macro issues behind the play and how he represents that and how the characters represent that. But he has legitimate conflicts about Absolutely. his own role and caring for his family and wanting to earn a paycheck. That's for what as makes him a good character. Also, That's what makes him a complex character. Yes. But he's still a complex antagonist in this dynamic of what's going on on stage. Yes, he but, is the representation of the antagonist. I agree. Yes, with that. but also like he is a three dimensional character, not just a symbol. Absolutely. And, and I feel like that's sort of where the divide on this table is that you want to lean into the symbolism more, which is a valid way to see this play. And I think we are like really resisting that. And and, like, I I don't think that makes either of us like Mm. more right or wrong or more sympathetic or not sympathetic or whatever it is. I also, I just want to point out to anyone who's listening, who hasn't seen the play that um, the playwright has a note at the beginning of the uh, uh, program, which you can also read on the Atlantic website, where she specifically talks about how it was not her intention to, like demonize the union or in any way like make a statement about unions as a phenomenon and how she loves unions and all that stuff that because I just listening to our conversation I don't want you to think that this comes across as an anti-union play which uh, um, I don't think it is I don't think no, no right but I just some of the things that I said about Faye's character I thought might lead you to think that and I want you to know mm-hmm. that that is that is not the plan that's also like explicitly expressed in the in I mean the- I'm okay. heavily biased because one of my friends who now no longer has his job, was head of the AFSCME, CLO, whatever union in Miami, actually gave him my first grant, was a president of that for 10 years. My dad was involved with unions. I know union people in that dynamic. My mom worked at a company like Detroit Auto Factories that was completely destroyed by corporations. And you, I continually saw this dynamic play out. And usually it was a smiling middle manager who had a family, who had good intentions, who still you know, carried the hatchet. And that doesn't mean that this person's evil, but they're still carrying the hatchet that gets all the things that Wall Street wants accomplished. Yes. Which okay. makes them complex antagonists. All right. So we, as mentioned, uh, this play is in the small theater at the Atlantic. Which, which can I we think talk is, about that? Well, what we is can, that about? It's <laughs> about racism. I mean, like, the fact that this play is, like, in a yeah. basement in a theater I had never been to before, like, in, in, in tiny space. Like, uh, this is one of the best plays I've seen all year. I yeah. mean, it's not all year, the beginning of 2016. Like, in the last 12 months. Um, and it is... It is uh, 
as my people say, it's a Shonda that this is like, I almost didn't see it because I was like, oh, it's on stage two. Like, I, if I need to skip something, I can skip this one. And I'm so glad I went because you guys went, and I'm so glad I did. And a few years ago was uh, Chimichangas and Zoloff, the Latino play. Pretty much it's where they put the brown and black people That's a lot of times in the basement. And meanwhile, they're doing, well, I'm not even going to say. Uh, <laughs> I'm just, okay, I will so dot, dot, dot that. This play, I believe, as of the time folks will be hearing this, is sold out. I have not yet heard of an extension. I am sh- would be shocked if there's not one. There must be yeah. a technical reason behind that if there's not an extension. I hope there will be another production of it that you can see because... Um, Although we have, you know, disagreements about the play, I think we are unanimous in our thinking that is a quality play, an interesting play, and obviously it drives a lot of discussion and deep thinking, and that's exactly why we go to the theater. So, and with five performers and a unit set, you're going to see this at every regional theater within the next couple years. So, if you're one of our listeners who is not in New York, you're in luck. You probably still have this in your future, and you should definitely go see it. And if you have seen it, we would love to hear from you on Facebook or Twitter what you thought about it, what you think about our. Our own discussion on these issues and the other thing i am super curious about is i so i didn't see detroit 67 the middle play the name of which i can never remember paradise blue has not played in new york yet Correct. and i think is also not published so if anyone has seen all three of them or read all three of them and can talk mm-hmm. about um the thematic connections or the ways that these link to each other i am so curious about that please let us know on- all right coming up next <laughs> Sanctuary. God, I feel like we just had a whole podcast. Like, <laughs> no, that's good. We should have us. debate. No, it was great. We absolutely should. All oh, right. I'm talking about Sanctuary, right? Yes, you oh, are. God. <laughs> um, so Sanctuary is a one-person show playing at the Lion Theater on Theater Row. Um, it is written and performed by Suzanne Sulby, and it is about... Um... Guys, war is sad. <laughs> and that's what this play is about. <laughs> So (laughs) it's like she plays lots of different characters, but I want to say that the the way that I understood the play is that there is like a middle aged white suburban housewife who watches television and learns from television that war is sad, Um, and she really that makes her sad, and she wants to not be sad, so she decides that she's going to do something about war. And uh, she also portrays various women in various wars, some of whom are um, combatants, some of whom are hostages, some of whom are reporters. Um, And we know that she's playing these different people because this is performance art and she has a scarf. And that (laughs) scarf moves around depending on which character she's playing. Um, Except when she's playing the scary poetic angel where she stands against the wall and they project wings (laughs) and she speaks in verse. Um... And I believe at the end of, like, this odyssey through war, after we've been subjected to, like, you know, someone being tortured and projected images of the liberation of Dachau, um, she decides that she's going to send care packages to soldiers. The end. So, uh, <laughs> so I have to say... <laughs> I We've been to... trying not to laugh through the whole synopsis. So um, if you've not ever seen performance art but you've seen people make fun of performance art on like in movies or on tv um this is what they're making fun of that that is that's how i've been describing this play to everyone it's just she means so well she really does (laughs) oh i forgot hashtag she means so well i forgot to talk about the interpretive (laughs) dance that ends with her putting a gun to her head and killing herself Spoiler. Oh, I think I forgot about that. Wow. So, so we've got poetry. We've got interpretive dance. We've got the scarf. Um, you know, if you play performance art bingo, like, you can win pretty quickly in this one. Will this be done at Lort Theaters, Lort C's, or D's, or no. Q's around the country? This will only be done if she takes it on the road and pays for it herself. You think that she will get, like, a bunch of gigs? Since it's a one-person show... And it's addressing an important issue, even though it's um, done in a poor manner. I mean, look, she did it at Edinburgh, right? Oh, Um, I don't know. Wow. She's done it at at some festivals, (laughs) I think, at Edinburgh. Um, She did it in New York at the same time as APAP, which I think was on purpose. APAP is the the big conference every year when presenters from around the country come to New York to see new shows to think about whether or not they want to put them on. Uh, I just I I can't I can't imagine this having a life anywhere. I mean, I don't know. 
Sad white women, what do you think? Well, so here's the thing. I mean, I think we're, unless, Oren, do you want to say anything in contradiction to what David has expressed? Unfortunately, no. It is accurate. Okay, so here's the question I have is, where did this go wrong? So I think we all agree (laughs) that this woman had good intentions. And we all agree that war is sad. And we do not do. disagree with the premise, yes. David. And so I just can't figure out how it is that somebody has a realization they that, you know, the, the world is terrible things happen in the world. They want to make a contribution. She There's an introductory note where she talks about making donations of clothing and volunteering at a food bank and then deciding that if we can just increase our level of consciousness globally that you know we can make the world a better place so she creates this production that is earnest and treacly and bad in all the ways david has identified and yet clearly she started out with good intentions on a sentiment that we all agree with so what happened well it it is a solo producer this is their first show that they've ever produced they are dedicated to producing world-class theater and life-changing events um, I think that this is uh, like maybe just a bunch of really well-intentioned people who don't have um, s- like an experienced eye kind of looking at this with a little bit of cynicism, which even with the most earnest plays is sometimes necessary. I think that uh, when I had to teach playwriting at a few guest colleges, as guest artists at a few colleges, uh, we would talk about specificity and locking down on specific moments. We have all these grand intentions of talking about Bosnia and missions to Mars and grand, huge issues. But if it's not grounded in something from, I hate to say this, but your childhood or something that's really personal, it's very hard for an audience to to enter into what you're trying to say. And in one incident, I asked people to do these family stories based upon parents' first date. I was at Gettysburg College, and I was like, we're going to do parents' first date stories. I want you to ask your parents the basic who, what, when, where, why, and then make up the rest. You're just going to ask them when, where was the setting, what exactly was the dynamic of the logistics, and then we're going to add some elements based upon narratives you like, based upon uh, myths and fairy tales that you like, and we're going to insert that, theatricality, into this story about parents' first date. And every single story was hilarious, funny, and because their parents were around in the 60s and 70s, a lot of them had actual political undertones. There was one person in the class who said, well, I don't want to do this. I want to write about World War II. And I was like, okay, do what you got to do. So this 19-year-old wrote this play about this first date during World War II, and it was Awful, And it stuck out like a sore thumb in this festival we did because it wasn't specific, because it was trying to be important, because he was 19 years old, had no direct experience with it, was not related to it, but he maybe saw a documentary and thought, World War II is sad. I I don't want to do parents' first date. My parents aren't worthy of my artistic vision. I'm going to talk about (laughs) World War II. And after the festival, he came up to me and said, "To, to a certain extent, you were right. In my initial, I let him do it because you have to let people do what they want. It's like, you were right. Why didn't that work? And I was like, it didn't work not because you're not a talented writer. It didn't work because you didn't do all the basic things to set up a compelling story. We didn't know as an audience member what we were entering into. It was just this vague story about World War II and a Jewish woman and a guy. And I was like, what the fuck is this? Um, but he had good intentions, just like this woman does. And if she had to rewrite this, I would say... She has to find something in here that's personal to her beyond watching the TV and being sad. I also think that this was a show that tried to tell too many stories, yes. right? Like, if if it had just been the woman watching TV, the woman who was a hostage, and the reporter, and that's it, which is sort of the the three that seem to be the most uh, dear to her heart because they're the three who I think are represented by the show logo um, – you know, I think it might have been a little bit closer to like, like we get that all wars are the same at heart. I think I don't think you need to like show us documentary style that like people suffer in every war for to get that point across. And I think that was a, a little bit of a miscalculation there. 
the repression of emotions when you're dealing with torture and war on stage is very important. This isn't a movie. This isn't TV where you can show horror and have blood spurting and have the uh, simulated effect of actual torture. On stage, when someone is having sex or being tortured, it looks very bad if you try to do it full on. As we've all experienced the dry humping scenario of sex on stage, we kind of go, what's going on? This isn't sex. Let's remember intimacy for a moment. <laughs> and, and, or use fluids. Um, like if, you, if you're going to do actual torture like sex on stage, it has to be done in a way that isn't literal. Because as an audience member, we're sitting there watching. We know this isn't torture. Mm. We know you're play acting. So you have to play on our fears and anxieties of the anticipation of torture or sex rather than the actual act because it's going to read phony. Okay, so in conjunction with this play, David wanted to talk about another of the shows we saw, Long Yarn, which was at the Bushwick Star by Banana Bag and Bodice. It is a devised piece, (laughs) uh, but credits Jason Craig as a writer directed by Elena Heyman and there are three performers, Peter Bloomquist, Jessica Jellafy, and Julian Roselle Jr., it is, as the title suggests, a woman spinning a long yarn from atop a giant pile of unknown stuff, perhaps clothes and water balloons. Her two grown but uh, stunted sons are also on stage uh, towards the back on a broken couch. They're in an environment that looks like a um, hobbled, perhaps mobile home or something of that variety. Um, she tells stories that are clearly mythical and why did you want to talk about these two together david because if sanctuary to me was like what people who have only heard about performance art think of when they're making fun of performance art long yarn to me was what people who've only ever heard of experimental theater in such a way would create if they were trying to make fun of experimental theater so you didn't like it i did not care for it (laughs) so let here's how i would describe long yarn it is a what like an eighty minute play. Mm-hmm. For seventy minutes, we are in the low light while this woman, who is like I don't know, in her twenties, playing someone in her old, um, <laughs> sits atop this pile of 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 clothes that kind of looks like a fancy rundown wedding dress. It's actually a very cool effect, but she's barely lit. She speaks in almost a monotone, um, a nonsensical story. For like 70 minutes without stopping. And then there's like 10 minutes of story with her kids. Um, also, there's it's all done on top of a tarp that is covered in water so that they can slip and slide around at the end. It's the show, for those of you who follow me on Twitter, if you saw that I said sometimes you find yourself dozing off on a show and then you wake up and you have to make that decision about whether you're going to try to stay awake or just like lean into the nap. This is the show where I gladly leaned into the nap so i don't know maybe i maybe i missed something tell me i'm wrong i wanted to like long yarn (laughs) i was rooting for a bold ambitious experimental theater at bushwick star yes give it to me we're in new york city in the village or not the village in brooklyn on friday i i was rooting for it and it just failed on so many levels, not only when it came to the narrative, which was like a Beckett-esque ripoff of rambling, but Beckett, the reason why Beckett's Beckett is because it actually, the rambling relates to something underneath. Even play with the three heads in the, in the, in the vases actually is very deep if you listen to it again. And all they're doing is talking about an affair and it's hilarious. I relate to that, even though I've never been in an affair and these three white people are talking on stage. I feel emotional about it. And the stories wrap up without being necessarily a narrative arc that's simple and clean. Uh, I think she read a few of Beckett plays or they read a few Beckett plays and then said, we could do something on top of a trash heap, too. <laughs> and we'll throw in a slip and slide and this naturalist story on the side with these two brothers who are yammering away, arguing with each other, who aren't likable. I don't really care about them. And they don't really relate to the story until the very end of what's going on, besides being related to the woman rambling on top of the giant pile. Um, I mean, look, yeah. I, I, I think if we're being generous to it, I think it did have something to say. I think it was trying to say something about 
the power of stories and um, and inheritance and the way that things are passed down or not. Um, I think that if you want to like scratch into the symbolism a little bit, the two sons reminded me a little bit of Cain and Abel in that one of them was defined as, or Jacob and Esau or like or any of these biblical brothers where one is portrayed as sort of agrarian and one is sort of aggressive because one of them was a, a former soldier and one of them was a failed uh, shepherd. But it's all this sort of like vagueness of it that I think ultimately is where it failed. That it it didn't. I I didn't feel the specificity of of any of it, and so therefore just sort of kind of. I like it when they fried the egg on stage, and I like the water on stage. And if I had to reconstruct it based on purely visceral moments of like smells, taste, and sound and touching. I would have, okay, here's my bad rewriting 101. <laughs> I would have added more than just the egg, and then I would have had the water cascade out of that pile at the very end to become the slip and slide. Rather than looking at water for 70 minutes mm. going, what's going on with this giant pile of water right here? <laughs> when are we going to use a giant pile of water? Rather than like having this almost her water burst, this catharsis of getting up and then having a sluice sound and having the stage be filled with water that they then slip and slide across that comes almost from their, their mother. I thought would have been kind of cool and a visceral kind of thing I could have uh, attached on to. So Aaron's solution is to increase the production budget by three times. <laughs> well, it's interesting that they had this like really yeah. elaborate and well-produced sound plot, and then like they had lights that were focused on her elbow for seventy minutes. Like, well, it's funny, David, that you didn't like that because I think I'm. Pro- I, I guess I'm going to be the defender of this play. That's Not that right. I thought it was yes. perfect and brilliant, but um, I actually thought the lighting of her and the way there were times when she was backlit or lit from the side or just parts of her were lit, or only when she made certain movements did she was she cast into the light. I actually thought that was pretty interesting, and I enjoyed that. Um, there was a part where the, the, the audience was lit, and um, she was not, which was, I thought, an, an interesting way to kick off the production that I came to with very little information. I would credit them with raising some interesting issues um, that that you elaborated on David, including the role of myth in our independent, our individual stories, the way that gets passed along, also raising uh, the difficult dynamic between parents and children and aging parents. Like I, I was engaged by the themes that were being raised and I did think that they had an interesting way of presenting them. So, you know, I don't know how many I give it on my star chart, but it, it's not perfect, but I, I, I give it Aquarius on my star chart. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, okay. That's that. But, uh, did we mention that that was part of the exponential festival? We did now. Um, so this is, you know, although we are technically not uh, doing a festival show uh, in this episode, this was one of three exponential shows we saw, or only two because we missed two because we missed the third because of the weather. Right, but exponential is a brand new festival in Brooklyn. This year is its first year. Um, it is specifically to highlight Brooklyn artists, which is why we were slapping out to Bushwick. Uh, but as Brooklyn, as a Brooklyn resident, I very much appreciated. Um, that as a focus of a festival, even if it meant that I had to go to parts of Brooklyn that forced me to go into Manhattan to get to them. Yes. Well, on that note, David, why don't you discuss Toilet Fire? All right. So um, longtime listeners of Maximum may remember I previewed Toilet Fire like a year and a half ago when I had its first New York run at Jack, which is also in Brooklyn, but much more convenient to where Orin and I live. <laughs> Two blocks away from me. Yeah. Uh, but I did not get to see it then. Toilet Fire is a a performance piece that takes place in a church-like setting uh, called Blurch. Is that right? Um, <laughs> where uh, we are um, the congregation to a mass that is organized around excrement and, and uh, the bodily function of pooping. Um, for a show that is all about pooping, it's actually like pretty tasteful. Mm-hmm. Uh, like and, like there, there was never a time when you like they don't it doesn't rely on gross out humor at all no the cringes were over the puns not yes. the function uh, which I, and so eliza bent is the artist who put this together um it's it's her on stage with a pianist we aren't sure if it's the same pianist every time we know that at least at one performance dave malloy who uh you might know is the composer of natasha pierre and the comet of whatever year that was um uh, and ghost quartet etc uh who is also her husband uh, 
played the piano. We saw someone else at the performance that we went to. Was, I wish I knew her name because she was great, but they did not make programs. Um, and uh, it, it was just – so first of all, let me just as a proviso say that like if you want to find the way to David Levy's heart, you do performance art that is based on religious ritual with poop jokes. <laughs> like that, that is like core de Levy. Um, <laughs> so already I was predisposed to like this, but I, I just – I really liked it. It was a show that I thought was um, really – respectful without being reverent about religion and ritual and the role that it has in our lives. Um, I thought it was a really clever way to look at um, bodies and shame and the relationship between religion and shame and identity. Um, It was just, it was so, I I don't know. It was the kind of thing that sounds like it could have just been a joke and a punchline. I thought was so like fully, um, realized. Uh, I want to give um, a shout out to the director, Kevin Lapson, uh, who is an uh, acquaintance of mine, a friend of the show. Um, and uh, it was, uh, I just, I, gosh, I, I just think everyone should go see it. I really, really liked it. I, and I'm so mad at myself because they made reference in the show to having merch and I forgot on my way out of the theater to see if that was actually true because I really want one of the t-shirts that has the icon of the toilet. <laughs> Yeah, that was a cool T-shirt. I, I saw buttons. I don't know if they were selling the T-shirts. Mm. Anything to add, Oren? I saw the play last year when it was at just the Abrams Art Center mm-hmm. at, the, at the same space, or different space, Abrams Art Center, and I enjoyed it for the most part. I maybe didn't enjoy it as much as David did. I didn't think it was as successful for me personally, but I could see the artistry. I could see what she was doing. I appreciated some of the jokes, and then it would be a succession of really bad puns. And to me, to the point where I was almost about to check out, and then she'd bring me back in with something witty. And then it would be like more and more stupid shit, more bad stuff. And then she'd do something that would bring me back in. So it was sort of this pull and tug with me emotionally as well as uh, psychologically when I was watching it. And like, do I like this? Do I not like this? And I was like, you know what? I'm glad I saw it. It's definitely... uh, something I've never seen before and I'm somewhat appreciative of it, but I maybe didn't draw as much from it as I should have. And this was like two months ago. So maybe it got better. Maybe they rewrote it. I mean, it was a smaller space. I assume Abrams, it was in the basement. Yeah, it was in the basement. This was, this was at the brick, which is also a smaller space. And I think that probably helped it. Um, I don't know. Lindsay, what do you think? Uh, I thought it was fun. I had a good time there. I, I, (laughs) I don't have anything profound to add. So let's get to our last show. She's like, let's wrap this show up. Well, you know, we had a long talk about Skeleton Crew, which I'm very happy about. Yeah, but we start that off means with we're the- running a little long. Uh, Comedia del Artichoke, Oren. Comedia del Artichoke, uh, with production notes by Francis Black, Carter Gill, Tommy Russell, who conceived it, who also acted in it, directed by Devin Brain, and performed by all of the above mentioned and Shannon Marie Sullivan and Alexandra Henriksen. And it's based upon Commedia dell'arte style of theater, which most people in America aren't familiar with. And I only studied in school. I never actually saw Commedia dell'arte play with masks and people doing uh, soggettos or scenarios that are somewhat improvised, somewhat written within the context of a play about someone losing their pizzeria and an evil landlord coming to take away their pizzeria. And then they sort of improvise these songs and sections in between. I believe it's improvised semi, somewhat. Partially. Partially. And then somewhat staged where they need to go. A lot of phallic humor, which is common for this genre. A lot of stuff that I found fascinating and disturbing with the mask that made them funny and scary at certain points. Um, I was also fascinated with their use of body work on stage in relation to the audience because the audience was positioned in a thrust almost. They made the stage thrust out and they had audience members on both sides and then in front of them. Now, do I like it or did I not like it? Once again, it felt like toilet fire, although not as good as toilet fire, where uh, there were moments where I thought that's really innovative, that's really cool, that's different. And then there were a lot of moments where it faded away. More towards the end, I feel like the audience on the night I saw it was with it. The first 15, 20 minutes, for some reason, they were on. It was funny. We were interested in it. And then, like, 
30, 40 minutes into it, you can feel people begin to lean back in their seats a little bit. 50, 60 minutes into it, lean back a little more. And then within an hour, there was that surrendering into the nap, either literal nap or psychologically going away somewhere. And occasionally they would yank us back with something really profound or innovative. But for the most part, people were in the nap zone and the audience I saw it with. And I tried to be a good audience member to make up for that difference, as we are now trained to do, to like <laughs> use our force field of positive energy to sort of wake people up. Uh, it wasn't that successful. I did enjoy the pizza, though. Did they have pizza on the night oh, yeah. you saw it? Yes, yes. The tickets are $30. They come with a slice of pizza. So that is definitely a bonus. David, what did you think? Uh, I think I liked it better than Orton did, although I agree that I, I, I think almost every show that I like but don't love, I would like better if they cut 10 to 20 minutes out of it. There was a point in the show when I had to like find myself keep looking at the program because I couldn't believe that it was only four performers mm-hmm. um, playing like at least eight parts, if not more. And I thought the I thought the performers were all really excellent. And also, I was so impressed with the mask work and kept thinking about how incredibly expressive they were, despite the fact that two thirds of their face were, were t- totally covered. Mm-hmm. I I laughed a lot. I kept trying to decide for myself if it was like actually saying deep things about gentrification and 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 the american dream or if it was just sort of using a very shallow understanding of that as a way Mm. to jump into this comedy and uh, i'm not sure where i came out at the end of that uh but i i liked it i i think it's the kind of thing i would recommend to my friends i think like i think it's a good time i think it's funny i think it's probably funnier if you have a beer which you can buy in the lobby um, yeah, I think it's the kind of thing where, like, if you had somebody come to town and they wanted to see something that was not a Broadway play, right? right. Let's, I want to see something that's kind of, like, edgy and underground. It's like, this isn't crazy. Like, I think your average person going to this is going to laugh a bunch and enjoy the pizza. And, oh, eating pizza and having a beer or a glass of wine at a tiny theater in NoHo. That sounds great. Yeah. I also think because this is not only a comedy but also semi-improvise. It fluctuates night oh, to night sure. upon what you're going to see and how much you're going to enjoy it, as well as the audience's response to that. Comedy is the hardest thing to track in theater because each night it's so different. Right. And then on, on top of that, you add improv- improvisation to it, and it's like a jazz band each night playing a new set that they're improvising through. Yeah, mm-hmm. I would say that the audience the night we saw it was probably more into it than the audience you described. Uh, what was funny is the three guys who were running the artichoke pizza pop-up in the lobby came in and watched the show, and they loved it. <laughs> I kept like watching them watch the show because they were having such a good time. I'm glad I saw it though, and and I did enjoy it. But the night I saw it, maybe because it was new and they were a little bit off, maybe because the audience was a little bit reticent or hesitating, and maybe because the energy theater is weird. I remember years ago seeing David Grimm's Measure for Pleasure at the Public Theater, and it was on a rainy awful terrible autumn night and it was supposed to be a restoration comedy and we all came in there we were drenched people were miserable and the first 10 minutes started and everyone had like their arms folded like fuck this shit (laughs) like people were just not having it and something the actor did 15 20 minutes into it was like a crack of sunlight Mm. and then you could feel the energy begin to change and another thing was done just just executed in such a way that there was more sunlight. And then pretty soon people were laughing. And by the end of the first act, they had won over the audience. They came in completely in a dark mood, like, I can't believe I have to fucking be here for this play on a rainy night. And it's so curious how that energy can shift with just a gesture, just a decision an actor makes or a line the uh, playwright has written or a way something staged can begin to like open up a resistant audience. I was thinking about that, too, especially in terms of audience participation. Um, at Toilet Fire, there are a number of sing-along moments. And um, now, I don't, usually I am, like, open to that sort of thing. But I definitely need, like, the performers on stage to, like, appropriately invite yes. us into the moment. And I was a little more hesitant at Toilet Fire to sing along, which may be because I was sitting between Lindsay and Nicole. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but Did it may... dampen your enthusiasm for participation? <laughs> no, but maybe. But also, I think that, again, like, I don't know that of all the things that the show did well, I don't know that, like, getting us to the point where we felt compelled to sing along was 
I think there it could have been handled a little more expertly. You know, I actually think there was a track that played during audience participation moments that sounded like the audience singing along. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm pretty sure That's there funny. was like an <laughs> external motivator voice thing happening. I, I think that was happening. If somebody saw that and disagrees, I'd be curious wow. to know because I felt like the that. Sound. Exactly. That's that's one clever way to do it. But I it, thought it was pretty smart, actually. Yeah. But I might be giving them credit for something that didn't exist. So, all right, what are we looking forward to that's coming up? I want to mention just a couple of things. One is actually something I saw. Um, it is a sketch group called Astronomy Club. I saw their show at UCB in Chelsea called A Journey Through Black History, and it was so funny and smart. And they were making comedy in situations that I've rarely seen made funny, and often thought perhaps it would be impossible to stage humor in that situation, including things like on a slave boat and in Martin Luther King's bedroom. But this group is very, very good. It's something I've never seen at a comedy club before, which is an entire group of performers, all people of color. So I was very impressed all around. Um, I will be keeping an eye out for them and catching them the next time I hear that they are performing. And then I'm going to something today called... Burnished by Grief, which is from the group The Talking Band. It is a sinister, music-infused romantic comedy about the beauty of cramped New York life at La Mama. And then later this week, um, Oren and I are going to see Sojourners, which is something that you mentioned on our year-end podcast. Do you want to mention that briefly? Sojourners is by Playwrights Realm. It's playing on Theater Row by Mufanisa. It's actually at Playwrights Horizons. Oh, Playwrights Horizons yeah. by Playwrights Realm, yes. uh, by written by Mufanisa Adofia, who is a phenomenal playwright who is breaking out. This is our breakout year, mm. and this is the beginning. You heard it here first. <laughs> we're <right>. claiming <laughs> that we are, were on the Mufanisa bandwagon before the New York Times and before all the other theaters are going to jump on it this upcoming season. So it is a part of her, not Decalogue and not Trilogy, but maybe seven-part Play oh, wow. about a Nigerian family. I saw receptacular. <laughs> I saw Portman Two at National Black Theater last year. That was more a chamber piece. That was maybe the fifth part or sixth part of this seven part series. And this is a more expansive journey explaining how they got to America and adjusted to it. This Nigerian family and husband and wife. So I'm really excited about that because I got a chance to read three or four of those plays years ago. Anything else you have coming up? I saw Glory of the World at BAM, but I would recommend people checking it out. Not because I think it's amazing, but because I think it may cause you to think. Uh, And the night I saw it, we had a very long, interesting conversation afterwards. And Hold On to Me, Darling, at Atlantic Theater Company, just because I like Kenneth Lonergan uh, a lot, a lot, and uh, Requiem and LCT3 because they always do weird stuff. And war after that. They, yep. they do weird stuff. And, and those are $30 you. seats if you act Wait, fast. war is an LCD 3? Yes. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. I thought it was in But those tickets house. are not on sale yet, last I looked. Uh, so the minute get, those go on sale, please, please let me yeah. know. Everyone, <laughs> we need to have a siren system for when those war tickets go on sale because that is a must-see and these will go very quickly. Yeah, they're going to sell out in a minute. So. Yeah. Uh, uh, guys, I have so much coming up in the next couple weeks. So right, just we'll some highlights. a few highlights. So first of all, um, this is... To, Today, when we're recording, is the first of the last six-week run of Late with Lance, which we've talked about in the podcast in the past. But if you like uh, sort of musical comedy parody stuff, uh, that's Peter Michael Marino performing at the Triple Crown on 7th Avenue. It's at 7 p.m. on Sundays, and it's a pay-what-you-can show. There are two uh, cabaret shows coming up in the next couple weeks that I'm psyched about. One I already saw, which is Molly Pope is recording her Mm -hmm. first-ever album live at Joe's Pub. It's called An Audience with Molly Pope. Uh, and I believe that is the night that you'll be hearing this podcast. And then on February 1st, Jessica Vosk uh, is at Joe's Pub. You might know her from uh, Fiddler on the Roof, where she's playing for Masera. Uh, that's a show written by my buddy Robbie Rizal, Uh And she did that show before at 54 Below. This is a little bit of an update on it. It's just, it's great fun. Uh, Liz and I and uh, David Lawson are putting together a special uh, Maximu edition on storytelling shows. So I'm seeing like 100,000 storytelling shows in the next couple of weeks. Uh, and if you have storytelling shows, you would recommend, especially ones that may include women, 
people, people of, of color, color uh, particularly women one, of color. Right. Please Especially one person shows that fall under those. We are seeing Motherstruck uh, this week. Oh, as good. Part I saw of that. that was supposed to be so good. I'm so sad. I, I saw that in previews. Um, yeah, it's very good. And then, guys, this coming Sunday, Grease Live on Fox. I'm so psyched. Are we going to have a, a viewing party? I don't have a TV. Are we going to have a viewing party? That's why I'm asking. <laughs> Somebody invite us to your viewing party. Yes. Uh, I'm already invited to a viewing party. Sorry. But, um, oh, excuse me. Well, there well, you we're go. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's in a small studio apartment. Um, but if you're into Greece, uh, I'm currently running a Greece Live contest on fuckyastevensonheim.tumblr.com. I saw that. You can win a Greece Live <laughs> swag pack, so check it out. Sweet. <laughs> we will retweet that. All right. Thank you guys so much. This was a fantastic conversation. Yay. Fiery. Yeah. On a wintry day. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Maximu Theater and Performance Podcast. You can find us all on Twitter. Maximu is at Maximu. Oren is at Oren Squire. David is at It's De Lovey. And I'm at Lindsay Barons. We'll see you next week with our February preview. <laughs>